0: Let's do it. We are. We, we were in Isaiah 60 last week, mm-hmm. but for some reason it doesn't seem like we did the whole chapter. But I was looking at what, yeah. what we covered, and I guess we pretty well did. You did
1: have the book to, re- to go back from the things as as you forgot to bring it. That's yeah. You kind of went over it, but you didn't really go over it good. Yeah.
0: It's, talk, it's talking about the, the glory of uh, the kingdom, the glory of uh, Jerusalem. It's the dawning of a new day, and it's a glorified Zion, is uh, what it is. And, um, of course, just to hit a little bit on what we did last week. God has a call to wake up Jerusalem. There's a new day that's dawning. God's glory is seen, and, of course, He's shown Himself. We, we talked about the glory of the tabernacle and the temple and the person of Christ and the church and then Him coming back. And, um, of course, there was a restoration of the people back from Babylon. It was a dark hour for Israel, but yet uh, this extends much further than just uh, the little rebuilding that happened in Israel after Babylon. It's talking about the glorious light. And then he talks about the gathering of the sons and the daughters. Did we mention that? Um, They will come back home again. That's generations from much later And the nations would be coming to worship. Remember talking about that? They'd be coming to Jerusalem. There's a lot of texts, actually, in Isaiah that mention that. I think it would be kind of interesting to look at. Isaiah 2, going all the way back to Isaiah 2, that the nations would come to Jerusalem to worship. In Isaiah 2, 2 through 4... Now it come about that in the last days a mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he will judge between the nations, will render decisions for many peoples, hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So that's, uh, that's a promise there of the regathering. The uh, nation's coming and to, to worship there, and uh, no longer will there be war. That's definitely uh, kingdom talk, isn't it? And Where Christ reigns.
2: say that we already in
1: the kingdom with that verse right there?
0: Yeah, they will not lift up sword against the nations at that time. So it's definitely a future time period. In chapter 11, verse 9, all along he's been mentioning this, you know, glimpses of it, and then boy, you really get it full force and starting at Isaiah 60. But 11:9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There he's talking about the holy mountain. And, of course, we think of the the focus of that, uh, where there is worship of God. Uh, It's Jerusalem, it's Zion, um, that kind of thought. Um, Chapter 27, verse 13 It will come about on that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and all who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. There he's saying that, um, of course, Assyria was, was a nation they were scared of at the time. And all those perishing there, there, there here's hope. And even then, the ones scattered in Egypt will even come. But they'll worship there at Jerusalem. And so then, fifty-six, chapter 56 of Isaiah, verse 7. And those I will bring to my holy mountain. You keep getting that holy mountain, right? That's going to be elevated, too. And it has. Let's go up to Jerusalem. Well, at that time, there will be even more of an elevation at this place. And make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And so therefore, it takes in the Gentiles and the Jews. Isaiah 56, verse 7. So we've we've seen those passages. And then if you were to look in Zechariah, chapter 14, back near the uh, end of the Prophet section, in verse sixteen, and this is definitely speaking of the time when Christ comes back uh, and he he um in chapter fourteen he goes against the ones who had assembled in Jerusalem and that were battling against Jerusalem and Israel. And then God will be king over all. Hello, guys. There you are. And I want to thank you guys for all coming out tonight. And we got, uh, I think we got all the verses there. <laughs> peace, love. Peace, that's what this chapter is about. It's about peace. Um, we're reading uh, Zechariah 14, verse 16. Then it will come about. Is it cold out there? You guys have jackets on. What's the deal? It was great while well, we What happened? Then it will come about that. Any man who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to do what? To worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to even celebrate the Feast of Booths. That Now, that's nations also, along with Jerusalem, you notice. Um, and of course, if they don't go up there to worship... The King, the Lord of Hosts, there will be no rain on them. So I I bring that into with all the other passages that we just looked in Isaiah, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 27, Isaiah 56, then Isaiah 60 and our whole text, and we see from other places where it talks about um, people going up to the temple to worship. The best thing you could do, isn't it? God's people come together. Uh, uh, Last week we also stressed that the wealth of the nations is to come to Jerusalem. All the wealth of the, uh, the world. And Isaiah saw ships, he saw caravans, bringing people, wealth, to the, the city of Jerusalem at this time. And we know that as we, uh, we look at that, we go, well, this is uh, quite a joyous time for the, this particular group of people who had uh, been so forlorn. The joys and the wonders there. If we uh, look at verse 15, it mentioned, whereas you have been forsaken and hated, forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I'll make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. So, uh, be enriched by the Gentiles. There will be precious metals, as in the days of Solomon. It will be plentiful. uh, Peace. In verse 17, there's our peace and safety. Chapter 67. I think that's what he's talking about. Might have got the wrong verse. Somewhere there. But anyway, righteousness.
1: I will make your overseer's peace in your testament.
0: There we go. I knew it was there.
2: It just word
0: just did not want to appear to me. So, uh, peace, safety. uh, You have characteristics of the city of Jerusalem uh, in there. um, uh, I like verse 12. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. So, the the nations are going to come to Israel, to Jerusalem. They're going to serve uh, Israel. Of course, we're all to be servants, right? To ministers. They will be ministers too. But if they don't, If they don't serve Him, if they don't worship God, then He will cause a curse to happen to them. Um, Verse 13, uh, at the end of it, "...to beautify the place of My sanctuary, and I shall make the place of My feet glorious." Verse 14, "...the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you." So those nations that afflicted them, there are going to be people that are believers that have been ushered into the kingdom, and they will come, in, in a sense... You know, you have uh, a humbleness of the nations. All those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So quite the promises to a nation that was still going to have to be judged by Babylon. And they've gone through some times where it seemed like the Lord forsook them. But guess what? Look at the glorious future they have. And we know it's this is the ultimate. This is not uh, some little temple that was built up later. Zerubbabel's temple and such. This is the the glorious time of, of Jerusalem. So that was kind of an overview of chapter sixty, in case we didn't get everything last week, and we didn't again. We're still covering it pretty quick. But um, uh, oh, verse twenty one too. Then all your people will be righteous. God makes them righteous. They will possess the land forever I think that's a key word there because in the Old Testament you see the promises of a restoration of a land a restoring of it um, and it says you, you will have it forever verse uh, chapter 61 I don't think we got into this last week but it seems like we still yet covered some verses I love this um, the very first verse and going into verse 2 because it might look very familiar. The Spirit... And notice the Trinity here. Uh, Bob, what is it? Put on your triune glasses. Yeah. <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. What do you guys see there? See the Trinity, right? You see the Spirit, that be the Holy Spirit, of the Lord God. Who do you think there? the Father, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And that's Jesus, the Messiah. And as he uh, goes on, Isaiah does, we know Jesus quoted this same passage and it was really about him, wasn't it? Can you imagine being in a synagogue listening to the very one who this was about and really He's the one that really wrote it. He gave it to Isaiah. And then he's saying, this is me. <laughs> this made a lot of people mad, though, didn't it? It made them so mad that what they want to do? They want to kill him. Um, to bring good news, the gospel, to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And he stopped uh, uh, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and that's where Jesus stopped, wasn't it? Right there, out of uh, is that out of Luke, Luke four, Luke four sixteen through twenty one. Let's go there. Luke four. This happens to be is this in his own hometown in, in the synagogue, and he is appointed. He has been doing ministry, and he comes back. And uh, he was even he was he was tempted, and he had been teaching in synagogues. And He comes back home to Nazareth. Verse sixteen. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. So that means he went to church. <laughs> went to synagogue, didn't he? You'd think, well, this is God. Why would he want to go to synagogue? He already knows, all right. <laughs> and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah, right where we're at tonight, was handed... That's just to be the place where they were supposed to read that day. Of course, you could probably open up any place in Isaiah or anywhere else, and it's going to be pointing to who? Exactly.
2: (laughs) That's what the Bible's
0: about. So just what a text, though. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel or the in Isaiah, the good news, same thing, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's His first coming. And He, opened, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And that's where he really started preaching on it. He takes the text and then he starts explaining it. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> this has been fulfilled. You're looking at it. Me. <laughs> that's an incredible, incredible thing that happened there. You know, it reminds me of the year of Jubilee, you know, we're in, uh, out of uh, Leviticus the whole background of that passage. Debts were canceled. We even sing that song, don't we, here at Jubilee. land was returned to the original owners. The slaves were set free. And everybody was giving a fresh new beginning. And that's what Jesus was saying. Here's what I came here for. Now, the only thing is, is there's a second coming. And the reason that he stopped there, the first time that he came, he did not come to judge. But the end of that verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. But it wasn't a time of vengeance. It was a time to present the good news. And then he says, to comfort all who mourn. (laughs) But um, uh, can can you see the the year of Jubilee there? Good news to the afflicted. Um, Bind up the brokenhearted. Liberty to captives. Freedom to prisoners. Claim the favorable year of the Lord. So the year of the Lord's favor
1: is talking about his first coming?
0: First coming. And,
1: then the next and that's why he day. stopped
0: right. right where he did.
1: Okay. And then the day of vengeance.
0: And the day of vengeance is the second coming. And, and that's what we see all through Isaiah, don't we? Not only was there judgment back then to those nations, but there will be a great judgment of, of the world when Christ comes back. There are a lot of things to happen in the future. It hasn't all been fulfilled, and boom, we, he comes back, and then that's it. No, there are a lot of things yet to go. Matter of fact, an eternity matters. <laughs> but there, uh, there's a lot to say about future, and this is dealing with judgment. Isaiah is mentioning that, even our text where there's such glory being dealt with, you still get the um, the matter of, of judgment. But uh, he's really focusing on here. Here's the good news to you. Uh, you I do have uh, hope to give you. And uh, that's, that's an Isaiah there. And then when Christ came, yes, that is the fulfillment of it. He is the fulfillment. First coming, but then the second coming. So the land is to be rebuilt. The land is to be repaired. It's to be restored. And uh, that's uh, a grand future at the end of verse 3, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. Oh, just before that, He's talking about uh, His chosen ones. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. Oaks. Oak trees. What do you think of when you think of a mighty oak? Strong, right? They, they, They last forever. It's sturdy. Oaks of righteousness. Before, they were like uh, reeds, you know, just blowing in the wind, but um, they'll be like oaks of righteousness. And the planning and the reason is is that God to be glorified, and He can take such weak people and and uh, make you know, them oaks of righteousness.
2: That
0: will hold yeah, it's all in in the Lord Himself, isn't it? So, um, quite the hope. He says in verse four, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. That has to be the land. It has to be the people of that land. It has to be Israel, doesn't it? I don't think that can be the church there. The ancient ruins, the former devastations, ruined cities, generations... Verse 5, Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. You remember we already saw that in chapter 60 where there will be um, nations coming in, bringing in, uh, yes, even flocks. Flocks of sheep. Um, Foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. They will be serving you this time. But you will be called the priests. That's what they were designed to be in the first place, weren't they? A kingdom of priests. Of our God, you will eat the wealth. Uh, oh, you will be spoken of as ministers of our God, servants, priests, and servants. Ah, yeah, the church gets on that too, don't they? Uh, I think Peter calls us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, you know, like a royal priesthood, right? And um, of course, we know that, yeah, we're, we're part of this fulfillment. But first you start with the context that we're talking about. Yeah. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Their riches are going to bring. He's going to double bless them. There's a double portion. You remember when the the ancients would have the first son and he would get a double blessing, a double inheritance? And he's saying Israel will be uh, put up to that part. God will acknowledge them as uh, like the firstborn. Um, at the end of verse eight, make an everlasting covenant with them—everlasting, eternal, forever. I think of Jeremiah 31. I think of Ezekiel 38, 36, 37. I mean, um, ooh, uh, at the end of verse or uh, top of verse nine, that their offspring will be known among the nations later on. Offsprings, offspring, offspring. I think we ran into that before. Uh, The nations know them. They're descendants in the midst of the peoples. Then to verse 9. Because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I like this. Oh, how about garments of uh, salvation, robe of righteousness? We're, We're moving to that. Verse 10. Sounds like a song. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Uh, at the end of verse 11, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So quite the, quite the promises there. Garments, salvation, robes of righteousness. Of course, every believer as the robes of righteousness. The everlasting covenant. The blessings of that new covenant. Are you guys remember Jeremiah 31? That's the promise of the new covenant. Of course, we are in that new covenant. It's already happened to us. And it'll happen to all the ones who are the chosen ones all the way up to the time Christ comes back. Uh, those who enter into the millennial kingdom, they will marry. They will have families. They will enjoy God's blessings on the earth. They will um tend to gardens. They they will be doing work. You know, not like it's just uh you don't do anything there, just kind of float around in the in the clouds and play your harps, right? <laughs> um look in Revelation chapter twenty one through five. This is what the time that we're talking about. This is where this is at. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil. So he's called the dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. Bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Remember how we've been talking about in Isaiah about the nations, the nations will come up to Jerusalem and worship. This is at the time where Satan is bound, no longer to deceive the nations. Some say that he's bound now, but my Bible tells me that in 1 Peter that he seeks, he roars like a lion, he seeks someone to to devour. In Ephesians 6 it talks about the enemy that we have. Um, in, In James, it talks. look at all the text that it deals with Satan who is blinding the minds of the unbeliever in 2 Corinthians 4. And yet some will say that Satan is what? Bound. How can that be? The nations are deceived. Right now, there's no doubt. Our nation is deceived. The whole world is deceived. And it's because Satan blinds the minds of the unbeliever. He's still doing it. If God wanted to keep that from happening, he could do it in a moment just like that. But he uses him as that. But um, So that that's really key. He threw him into the abyss, shut it sealed it over him, said he did not deceive the nation any longer until the thousand years were completed. So there's a time where he's going to be able to get out again until that time. After these things, he must be released for a short time. <laughs> it will be. It will be really quick. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years completed. Who are the rest of the dead? The unbelievers. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. All the believers of all time. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. So he's bound. I don't think we can say during the time of the 2,000 years we can ever say that Satan wasn't bound. I don't think we could say that he is not bound now, right? Bound. Or, or bound. Bound. Yeah, bound. Yeah, using the wrong language there. Mm-hmm. So it has to be sometime in the future, doesn't it? Where he is bound and then released for a short time and he will deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth God may God to gather them together for the war the number of them is like the sand of the seashore so during this time period when you start off with all believers in the kingdom all of them are believers but they will marry we're not talking about glorified believers at that time the the people who are believers Old Testament saints people in the church now and we've be resurrected into a glorified body. Okay, we we will not marry. But the people that are ushered, that live during the time that Christ comes back, namely, I can see it would be the people of Israel. They will look upon Him whom they have pierced and mourn for Him as an only son. And immediately, when Christ comes back, they will see Him. They will become believers by the grace of God. They are living go into the kingdom. They have children. Can
1: you give a quick
0: timeline on that? that? Well, that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, If we were to take, like today, there are no glorified people among us, Mm -hmm. but we have children. We raise them up in the way of the Lord. We're never guaranteed that they're going to be believers, right? Mm -hmm. Um during this time period Christ rules and reigns so whenever there is some kind of sin or uprising it's immediately put out because he will rule and reign with a rod of iron now i know that he he can do that and he does do it today you know there's but there's another sense where thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven where whenever sin is done it's against his will he's he's going to to make Things and if they don't come up to worship him, then he's going to not reign he's R A I N. he's going to cause a curse to them, so there's a curse during this time it cannot be the eternal state it cannot be now it's never been in history, so it's a future time period um, and the we we know in Isaiah later on in chapter sixty six he'll talk about children. Uh, if you die at what, 100 years old, you'll be considered to be like a, like a child. Oh, you, you know, so people are going to live long, extended years, like they did early in the Book of Genesis. Why couldn't that happen? Well, it happened then, but it can't happen later. <laughs> you know, but um, so people would be considered cursed if they only lived 100 years. Uh, we put that together, and then we see that uh, also in that Isaiah. Talks about uh, them planting, planting. You know, there there will be um, blessings from God, as they won't need any walls, won't need any fences. That's never been. You know, they won't need any kind of protection because Christ is there. So with with all that being it, it uh, I think it certainly uh, deems worthy of this in a literal sense. These are promises that were all the way through the Old Testament, and Isaiah is just blossoming with that. And that's kind of how it happens. Um, anyway, there's a great white throne judgment and such just before this, or a great white throne is after the, the thousand year kingdom. I'm sorry, uh, where the the ones who were dead and not in Christ will be raised up. That's the second resurrection. The first resurrection are all the believers second resurrection is the the unbelievers and uh, of course they are then judged, you know, death and Hades the lake of fire uh, you have uh, Satan cast there and uh, Antichrist and such so they're judged from the book of life and they don't have life so anyway like I say, it's interesting that in chapter 26 times it's mentioned 1,000 years. So I think there's something legitimate to that. I think the Lord is trying to get something across to us that that, that uh, it means something more than some ethereal meaning. Um, and back to Isaiah, in verses 10 and 11 of 61... I think we were just finishing there. That's Isaiah speaking on the behalf of the remnant. And they're rejoicing that he's cleansed them, that he's they've gotten their robes, they've turned the desert into a fruitful garden. That's what has happened. God has done it. To me. So it, went, it goes from a funeral for Israel to what? A wedding. Now, 62 is the bestowing of a new name. More blessings. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. Who's speaking here? This is God speaking now. Um, For Zion. For Jerusalem. I'm not going to shut up. I'm not going to keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. And the nations will see your righteousness. And all kings your glory, and you will be called a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. He's speaking of majesty in that sense. He said, it will no longer be said to you forsaken. Now, that's what Israel was, uh, was called. They were, they were forsaken, like an unfaithful wife, right? Not divorced. Unfaithful. Forsaken for a time. Um, her trials would be forgotten though Uh, have a new name what is that Uh, uh, Hephzibah which means my delight is in her at the end of verse 4 you will be called my delight is in her Hephzibah verse 4 no longer be said to be forsaken um, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate that's that's an old name, desolate. It was replaced by Beulah. Beulah. My delight is in her. Beulah means married, and when a bride marries, she receives a new name, right? So she'll be given a new name, which uh, she's reconciled to uh, to him, married. Uh, the Lord delights in you. And then six through twelve. Um, on your walls, all Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. They will be proclaiming the honor of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. And give Him no rest until He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So he, He's not going to rest till He finally brings this to culmination. Do you see the promises of God that have to come true? He, it's like He forsakes them, doesn't divorce them. But he's going to come back for them. That's that's an amazing God that would do that. Now, if he does that to them, you know, look what he does for us. And he doesn't ever forsake us, even though we can forsake him. But never does he do that. Faithful watchmen he will give them. He did it before, but uh, it didn't do any good. Uh, they were not faithful. Look in Psalm 122 6. How many times have you heard of this one? Psalm two six. What a great God. This is all about God, isn't it? His plan, His promises. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for that. May they prosper who love you. Because we're supposed to pray God's will, right? This will happen. It's not like we're going to rush it and make it happen before the time that He has in mind. But the reason we pray is that we are to try to get a hold of what His will is. So when you pray scriptures, when you pray this, it's going to happen. You will get your prayers answered every time when you pray scripturally. When you pray for God's will rather than just our own little uh, things. And of course, he, He cares for us. You know, we are to be uh, praying that he would, well, he would he would take pray. care of us, it. he for does. To understand why
2: he would have to pray for
0: exactly, exactly. Jerusalem, the praise of the earth. So that's uh, how we bounced there from Isaiah sixty two seven to there. Uh, it will happen, and he's not going to have any rest until he finally does that. Still working on it, isn't he? <laughs> um, there will be no more losses to the enemies. Look in verse 8. The Lord is sworn by His right hand and by His strong arm. When, when He swears by this, this is the very power of God. And there's nothing over the power of God. He is omni, uh, omnipotent, right? And so He says this. I, I swear this, with this power. I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies. Now, did He do that? Yeah, he let the enemies come in. I, I can think of the Philistines. How many times did they come in and destroy their fields, burn them up. Just just uh dominate them. And it's because Israel was very unfaithful. You know, it was during the time of the judges. Many other times, but he says, "I'll never again let that happen." Yeah. What's that? It
1: would be a welfare role in millennial kingdom.
0: Yeah. Nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. Of course they would steal their vineyards. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway. There we go. Does that sound familiar? The highway. Of super Remove the stones, lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, His reward is with Him, His recompense before Him, and they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you'll be sought out, a city not forsaken. No more losses to the enemies. They'll enjoy the fruit of their labors and the very courts of His sanctuary. This is where they're going to clearly understand the uh, scriptural meaning of their worship. Uh, The temple. The courts of my sanctuary there in in verse 9 is the thought. Uh, Savior coming to it. So He's mentioned several times about worship of God on the holy mountain. uh, The temple that's there. In the eternal state, there is no building of a temple because God himself is the temple, finally. You know, it's amazing. I also think of the Millennial Kingdom, whereas right now we have the most revelation of any people ever in the history of mankind, right? During this time after the time of Christ. We can look back, see what he's done. Before, they had to see in pictures, building blocks, uh, all through the Old Testament, We can see clearly what the cross did. Okay, now take it up to one more level, before the eternal state, where you have people given even more revelation that we have now with Jesus Christ living on the earth, ruling and reigning. People can even come to the temple. They see Him. There He is, and He is dominating the world, and yet people will still sin during that time period, that are not glorified. The saints will not ever sin again, even during the kingdom. When I say the saints, I mean like, like the church, the, the Old Testament saints, right? But can you imagine a time where there are glorified people, there are people, and yet there are people that would not be glorified yet. They have believers They're believers, but they can still sin. They have children who can sin, and many of them are going to be the ones who will rebel against Christ at the very end when Satan comes to gather them up. And just like that, the ruler with the rod of iron is going to put it to an end very quickly. So, you can see that there has to be a time period where Satan is actually allowed to come and roam the earth again, and to gather up all the enemies, and said the, so there's going to be many, didn't it? In Revelation 20 when we read that. So people will still sin against Christ with the ultimate revelation.
1: Armageddon,
0: Armageddon would uh, probably... Uh, there's a final war, but there's an Armageddon before Christ comes back or it could be at that very time. Some even say that. Yeah, he comes back to... Before mankind destroys it, he comes back and finishes it up. And, and by, by the way, in chapter 63, it, it kind of that's where that's heading.
2: Uh,
0: this is announcing a new victory here. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Now, you wouldn't think that Christ would be coming from Edom. Why is he in Edom? What is the deal with Edom? I I think what Isaiah here, he's seeing Christ returning from the Battle of Armageddon, as we're going to look at at blood here. And this is going to climax the day of the Lord. Um, Comes with garments of glowing colors from Basra. Basra is a major city in Edom. The one, and you have a capital letter there, one, who is majestic in his apparel marching in the greatness of His strength. Who, who is this? It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Somebody asks, well, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? What's the red? By the way, Edom means what? It was, it, was kind of, it was a good representative of the nations that oppressed the Jews Edom was related to who Esau Esau despised what Jacob and the blessings that he had didn't he and so he's he's representing all the nations, and Edom means red and and uh it was a nickname for Esau I find that in genesis twenty five You have a wine press here. A wine press is a large hollowed out rock and that's where the grapes were put for the people actually to tread on. The juice had run out of this hole in this big rock and it was caught in the vessels then. People would stomp on them and so that's the people would crush the grapes. The juice would splash out a lot of times and it would get all over their garments and it looked like it was dyed with blood. Well, when Christ comes back, He will literally have the blood on Him as He conquers the enemies. He says, I have trodden, verse 3, I have trodden through alone and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So on my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." Now, go to Revelation chapter 19. Yes, there will be a tremendous judgment of Christ when He comes back. This is a future wrath of God. Verse 11, "...and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war." His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There is no doubt who this is coming back. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There will be people that will be believers in these nations though that will also go into the kingdom who will also come and serve Israel and they will come up to the temple to worship. (laughs) He will rule them with a rod of iron. Has this happened yet? No. He treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. (laughs) This is our King. What a triumph. It was something a little more graphic? And then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, "Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great." <laughs> um. There has to be something done to the bodies because we have a kingdom to live out and we don't want these bodies spread all over the place, do we? And then we're going to have the birds come, these vultures, and they will come and devour the flesh that is there. It's going to be a lot of them, isn't it? Can you imagine the gathering of the birds as they assemble for that supper? So, that's very graphic chapter 19 is, and it's Isaiah 63 here, as we see Him coming from Edom. It's just like that's been one of the places where He's coming from as He's going to Jerusalem and however way He's moving here on on His white horse, right? Um, it's definitely a climax of the day of vengeance. The enemy is going to be crushed like grapes, forced to drink their own blood from... Uh, a cup of God's wrath, I guess you could think of. Pretty graphic. I think the Jews of that day fully understood what, uh, what this meant. It's definitely the wrath of God being unleashed in an incredible way. Isaiah, very graphic. Revelation, you get the same thought there. Um, that is where Isaiah looks ahead in the first six verses. In 7 through 14, it's where he looks back. He looks ahead. Here's what's going to happen in the future. We have to have the, the end. We have to have great wrath, great vengeance, judgment on, on the nations. And at the same time, the grace of God going to his people, Israel. And people are going to be saved out of the nations. And they're going to be the all Israel, whatever's left will be saved, as it says in Romans 11, to usher into the kingdom where Christ rules and reigns with a rod of iron. And now, 7-14, through he's going to look back. Isaiah has looked into the future. Now he's going to look back and see what God has done. Um, He's praising God here. I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Now, this just comes right off of a passage where most people would disdain this Old Testament kind of wrath of God. There are people who do not believe in the wrath of God. They can't believe in the God of the Old Testament. What we just read, where it talked about His anger, His wrath, His day of vengeance. Um, again, His anger, His wrath. He's talking about blood, blood being shed, and not the blood of the cross this time. This is the vengeance of God. Uh, And then the next verse, Isaiah says, I'll make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, His mercy, according to all that the Lord has granted us. This is how good God is. Aren't you glad that He's going to judge the sins of our nation? Of all the things that are going on right now, right in front of our face, and people are flaunting it yeah. in the government, in the schools, all over the world, and uh, you know, on our TVs, radios, Internet, what have you, he's going to judge all of that. And so and, yet, and we see here that he is such a good, loving God, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel. Remember what he had done with them. But here's what he's going to do. He, you know, he had goodness. When he has granted them according to his compassion, so he's loving, kind, or merciful. He's very giving and granting. He's a good God. He uh, has compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. He said, oh, by the way, not just loving kindnesses, but the abundance of it. We're talking about how good God is. This is a praise God here. This is praise. You want to praise? Here we go. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Reminds you Isaiah fifty three there doesn't it, and the angel of his presence saved them, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. Now granted this is you know, we are redeemed, and we know his loving kindness. All of this is this is where we come in on the new covenant too right. So yes this does apply to us but you know we're still looking at you know who he was talking to but it definitely works for us. Uh, And He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Mm -hmm. All through the Old Testament. But they rebelled. Mm -hmm. Who's they? I mean, everybody would finally have to say, oh, rebelled? That's not the church. (laughs) But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned Himself to become their enemy. I have to ask this. Has God ever become the enemy of the church? No, it's part of His body all of a sudden they would have difficulty with that passage, wouldn't they? Therefore, He turned Himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. So all of a sudden they would have to say this is who? This is Israel here. Of course it is Israel. It's been Israel all along, hasn't it? Then His people remembered the days of old. Remember the days of old in verse 9? The days of old. uh, Moses during the time, where where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name
2: <laughs>
0: just like his creation right who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness they did not stumble as the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. That's why he's done this whole story. That's why he will redeem a nation that forsook him. And he'll come back and show how great gracious uh, graciousness that he has. He It's for his glory. And now we've seen where Isaiah looked ahead, then he looked back and saw what God did. And now he does what? He asks God to look down. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? Where, where are they at? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways? See, this. this is now it's at that time where Isaiah would be saying what the nation of Israel would be saying. Where are you, O God? Why, O oh Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. What sanctuary? It's the temple. They had that. They had the temple. They had the scriptures. They had all the things that God had given them. What blessings, what benefits... Our adversaries have trodden it down. I think that verse 18 just speaks volumes to who He is speaking to. We have become like those over whom You have never ruled. Like the Gentiles. Pagans. Like those who are not called by Your name. End of chapter 63. (laughs) But He's pleading. This is like... This should be like a revival prayer. It starts with, God, we need You. Come down. Reveal Your awesome power to us. You did all that awesome power in the wilderness and for the sake of Israel all those years. The nations they trust in dead idols. Let them see what the living God of Israel can do. At the same time, God, we pray for Your mercy and that's where it goes into...
2: 64
0: um, <laughs> well that ends up kind of where we were going to end up it's five after I wanted to read a quote or two and don't have enough time to do very many of them uh, probably I'm just going to tell you what Jonathan Edwards thought of this time that we're talking about by the way he believed in a millennium Jonathan Edwards a Puritan many Puritans did what? in a millennium, a A thousand-year kingdom. Jonathan Edwards. Anybody heard of J.C. Ryle? People on Facebook quote him all the time. Uh, He's a hero of the faith in the 1800s. Lived uh, somewhere around the time of uh, Spurgeon, actually. But here's Edwards. Believed in a land of Canaan, the center of the coming kingdom of Christ. This is all talking about just what we've just covered at. Okay? He speculated that the return of the Jews to their homeland is inevitable because of the promises of land made to them that was really only partially fulfilled. They never did get all the land that God had promised. Um, The return to their traditional homeland. A conversion of the Jews to Christianity. Now, by the way, when Edwards wrote this, there wasn't the nation of Israel It became a nation back in 1948. This is incredible. But he was was living in the 1700s. 200 years later. Canaan will be the spiritual center of the coming kingdom and Israel will again be a truly distinct nation. I'll read another quote or two. Jewish infidelity, unbelief, will be overthrown. However obstinate they have now been for above 1,700 years in rejecting Christ, which they are, and I know that, most of them are atheists. I don't even believe in God. Uh, Instances of conversion of any of that nation have been so very rare ever since the destruction of Jerusalem, but they have against the plain teachings of their own prophets continued to approve of the cruelty of their forefathers in crucifying Christ. Yet, when this day comes, the thick veil that blind their eyes shall be removed. 2 Corinthians 3.16 Takes the blinders off. How about Romans chapter 11 where they've been hardened partially and the blinders will be taken off. Romans 11.26 he quotes. He quotes Zechariah 12.10 They'll look upon him whom they've pierced as I quoted earlier. Um... Here's another thing. Nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews is in the 11th chapter of Romans. And the reason I kept going back to that, it sums up in the New Testament what you find so often throughout Isaiah and all through the prophets, all through the Old Testament. And he says this, Jonathan Edwards. There are also many passages of the Old Testament that can't be interpreted in any other sense that I can't now stand to mention. He had no time. Besides the prophecies of the calling of the Jews, we have a remarkable seal of the fulfillment of this great event in Providence by a thing that is a kind of continual miracle, The, the preserving them a distinct nation, which in such a dispersed condition for about 1600 years, they've been dispersed everywhere, it's a miracle that they could continue to exist. Have all of you thought of this before? Yeah. Um, It's a remarkable hand of providence. Um, God's people for so long a time be God's people again, never to be rejected more. Um, They have been, uh, shall the remains of the ten tribes whether they are, though they have been rejected much longer than the Jews. He brought in with their brethren, the Jews, the prophecies of Hosea seem to hold this forth that in the future glorious times of the church, both Judah and Ephraim or Judah and the ten tribes shall be brought together, shall be united as one people as they formerly were under David and Solomon. The ten tribes, the two tribes, united together. There is a cult that talks about <laughs> the the uh the two sticks coming together. I think you see that in Ezekiel. Is that the Jehovah's Witnesses is that talk about that? Is that the Mormons? on so the last chapter of Hosea he talks about that. Anyway um, the land of Canaan is the most advantageously posited of any spot of ground on the face of the earth. The place where truth will shine all over. And he's writing in the 1700s. He had much to write about it. I had some really good quotes. I might have to continue on with a few more next week. I had some checked and then You know, just uh, J.C. Ryle, some of the statements that he had was really good. Uh, He talks about Scripture generally means what it means, seems to mean. This is what we talked about last week. And to beware of that semi-skeptical argument, such and such an interpretation cannot be correct because it seems to us carnal, you know, as we, we interpret literally. It is high time for Christians to interpret unfulfilled prophecy by the light of prophecies already fulfilled. The curses of the Jews were brought to pass literally, so also will be the blessings. The scattering was literal, so also will be the gathering. This is what we've seen all through Isaiah, haven't we? The scattering and then the regathering. How can we knock out the regathering?
2: Copies Sorry. In a mysterious ways, but... This shows how he does move.
0: Like, mm-hmm. Sure does. It, <laughs> it is I mean, a miracle to supernatural. It. <laughs> <thought> it, it's all <laughs> God.
1: Uh, exactly. They still know who they are. Mm-hmm. Usually, when people scatter, they lose their identification of who they are mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But if for some reason, they never lose their identification, even though they almost like they are against that very thing, but they still know who they are. Interesting. But thought. they don't identify with tribes. Uh, yeah. They, tribes. Don't. Yeah. But then <laughs> they <laughs> don't know what <laughs> tribes are. Right. <you> know, <laughs> yeah. like. But they know that they're Jewish, but
0: they in all ways try to disassociate themselves in some ways. But then they've been proud on that same idea. The pulling down of Zion was literal. We've seen that in Isaiah. So also will be the building up. We just read that tonight, haven't we? The rejection of Israel was literal. So also will be the restoration. We saw that tonight, didn't we? We've been seeing it all along through here. This this was from J C Ryle. Uh one other thing he said this he, he protested against against the grain and against the system that he you know, he, he was reformed in the theology like we are. We're on his side. We're on Jonathan Edwards side. We're on the side of uh C. H. Spurgeon. <laughs> I mean there are a lot of reformed people. Uh and like I said, Martin Lloyd Jones, some other people had to fall on this side too because <laughs> They had to pay attention to scripture, finally. In Rome, but they still don't take it to where there's a kingdom, though. But, uh, but I think Edwards, Ed, Edwards definitely did. Ryle did. Um, he said this, Against this system I have long protested, and I hope I will always protest as long as I live. I do not deny that Israel was a peculiar, typical people, and that God's relations to Israel were meant to be a type of his relations to his believing people all over the world, like us. He said, I don't deny that. And and we don't either. We get to get in on those promises and it is a joy to us as we read, read those because they, they are true to us too. But he says what I protest against is and I think we've been we would say the same thing, the habit of all allegorizing plain sayings of the Word of God concerning the future history of the nation of Israel and explaining of the way the fullness of their contents in order to accommodate them to the Gentile church. I believe the habit to be unwarded by anything in Scripture and to draw after it a long train of evil consequences, where I would venture to ask in the whole New Testament, shall we find any plain authority for applying the word Israel to anyone but the nation of Israel? and he's saying that system says the believing Gentiles may be called Israelites. I cannot see anywhere at all. Amen. (laughs) It's time to (laughs) close. I wasn't looking for that kind of stuff. I just, I go, I had this book for quite some time. I think, uh, Barb, you've got this book, right? Did you order that book? Or is there another book? book Did you order this one, Future Israel?
2: No. That's not the one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I got to just reading through there, and I said, whoa, Jonathan Edwards. I had never read anything on Jonathan Edwards on on the Millennial Kingdom. And I started to find out, wow, he wrote a lot about it. Well, of course he did. He he wrote about glory a lot. And uh, we certainly have experience looking at glory in here. And it's really looking at Christ, really, isn't it? You know, I emphasize Israel so much. I hope that doesn't get on your guys' nerves. But... um the more that I read through there, how can it be interpreted anyway? way? And if it is, then why have we even spent any time in Isaiah? Where we have the New Testament, we don't even need that stuff. <laughs> of course we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your Truth. And may we see a little bit more glimpse of Your grand glory as we continue to study this book of Isaiah it is a summation of the gospel and uh, thank you for giving the promises to the people then to us now and knowing that not only have promises been fulfilled in our lives we have salvation and we have you living in us even today to, to live this out but we know in the future there is something that's even more and it will be glory And that's really what we truly live for because that glory is seeing you and that is eternal life, knowing you in the most ultimate way. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: But it's, we see those things that God's going to do with them to Israel. Why, why are we smile with those? Because we know those attributes He's already put on us. Mm-hmm. We've already seen those. He does those attributes because those constantly those blessings and like, right. taking care of and stuff like that. So, yeah. We don't
0: have to put our name in there. We already know those are the attributes
2: that He's given to us already. Right. Yeah. The but, blessings are ours. Mm-hmm. Really they are ours. What mm-hmm. okay. you go. <laughs>